Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, prepping your team for the future no matter what it brings. The data sharing dare for every federal agency and a guide for partnerships with industry at DHS. It's Tuesday, November 8th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. A programming note, the Daily Scoop podcast will observe Veterans Day on Friday. You'll get a new show tomorrow and Thursday, and then a new Daily Scoop podcast again on Monday, November 14th. Agencies are finally starting to make progress on their transitions to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract. According to the latest Fatara scorecard, industry observers say one of the obstacles has been change management. Perrin Ashmore is industry executive director for the federal government at Oracle. He's former chief information officer at the Department of Health and Human Services. At ELC 2022, I asked him what he'd tell a current government leader about change management. I think that the one piece of advice I have is, is to be honest, upfront, about what you're trying to achieve. I, I know that that sounds really trite and, and overused, but I think you've got to start there. Then you've got to make a real commitment to the people. And, and that is one thing that, that served me well in my career and still serves me well today, is that if, if you say you have an open door policy, for example, um, then you have to be you have to make time for that mm-hmm. and you have to make time for those people uh, change is difficult for a lot of us um, i happen to enjoy that change and i think that's my military background my mil- you know i grew up in a military family so change was pretty much something i learned to deal with early but you know the the one thing is you know i i would say is recognize and respect that the people that you're asking to change are incredibly successful and celebrate their success and, and, and really recognize that the change isn't necessarily because they're doing something wrong. Because I think a lot of people are in this boat of, oh, no, I, I must have messed something up. And, and that may not necessarily be the case. You know, it's just time. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you know, you see this over and over again. And um, I happen to see programs coming around the loop uh, in various agencies that I happen to work on. Uh, I say this almost 40 years ago. <laughs> So uh, it's going to be interesting to see. I, and I think that um, setting an expectation and being willing to make course corrections along the way also doubles down on your commitment to those employees that said, oh, wow, that may not work, but w- what do you guys think we should try? Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, that's, that's uh, as I think about this um, and, and, your, and your message from last week, uh, it's giving me time to contemplate some of these things. Yeah. So... Uh, the, the challenge there is that I think the sense that I get from your peers that I talk to, the employee, when you have that conversation with somebody, goes right to something that you mentioned a moment ago, which is, I must have messed up. I must have done something wrong. Not that they see it as a disciplinary thing, but, oh, we're not doing this thing anymore because, oh, I must have somehow fouled it up. And the challenge in the technology sphere, it seems to me, is no, it's just changing that fast. You know, this thing that maybe we started two years ago, it, it's been overcome by events and it doesn't have anything to do with your performance or anybody else's. It's just, it's time for something else. Yeah, and, and we, um, we have a lot of practical examples of that. You know, autonomous computing, mm-hmm. 3D printing. These are game changers, right? 
but they also impact somebody's livelihood. And so, again, I go back to, you got to be honest. And, and, you know, someone said at, at, at one of our conferences last week, uh, the best thing I've ever heard, you need to be real. So on, on, on my side as the former CIO, I have to have a realistic plan, not some pie-in-the-sky thing that disrupts a lot of people's livelihoods and work time. If it's not realistic, you're going to drive people through something, and then they feel like they're on this yo-yo, mm-hmm. and you're going to lose the people. Yeah. So consciously think about, is this going to happen? Is it, is it, is it something I can realistically do? Um, and, you know... And I, and I can use a cloud example. Some teams have found it easy to do the lift and shift first and then to make the big changes. And again, they're having that conversation with their staff saying, okay, what if we find this step way? Other people are like, no, just rip the bandaid off and go, right? So I, I think the beautiful thing, and, and Claire and Krista Russia have laid out this wonderful vision, but they've all said, to, to both of them have said, for each individual agency and department, it's a journey. Mm-hmm. I'm just telling you, this is where we need to get to. So it really is uh, up to those agency leaders to kind of say, okay, how are we going to deal with this employees? And and remember that even though you may have hired an employee to, and again, I'm using just a simple example, um, to, to be the, the chief of privacy, they may have a background in cloud native development that you're not aware of. So I would say, again, engage the employees and try to figure out how do I fit people into a, a different hole, right? Yeah. Um, and that was a lot of the government success during COVID was finding this talent that's out there. And of course, we just had the director of OPM speak today. Um, and and I would say, don't lean on position descriptions, mm-hmm. lean on your knowledge and understanding of people and work with your people to bring them in. Because again, there's an incredible amount of talent in the federal space. To that end then, it must be encouraging as a leader who has a vested interest in both professionally and personally in what goes on in the federal government to hear Director Ahuja talk about the fact that they're moving away from degree requirements and certification requirements and evaluating candidates basically as you're describing, as people and not just a list of accomplishments. As well as dealing with the upfront issue of pay. Mm-hmm. And to have someone at her level honestly talk about, hey, I understand pay is an issue. Um, because the, the, and the other thing that she's doing, which is something that GSA has led on um, and others like FDA have taken advantage of, is there is talent across this great country. And in the territories. I, I think that, you know, Steve Case has set this up with his $100,000 bus tour. Mm-hmm. The, government is no, the government needs to recruit where the people are. And, and I think we've proven over the last 20 years, and not just during COVID, because we were doing virtual teams long before COVID, uh, that we can do this uh, with, a, with people who are in outside of the beltway, I would just say. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and you get incredible results. And the other thing is that, that we found in, in VA and GSA specifically is that you can follow the sun a little bit. 
So not only do you get more productivity and more engagement, but now you've got support, this, this customer support that Claire talks about. Now you're actually able to turn that model a little bit mm -hmm. to say, oh, wow, I can take that call at 8 p.m. Eastern from a vet who needs to talk to somebody. Right. So so we're seeing all these things and, and the tools that they're giving uh, leaders today. Well, thank goodness, because, as you know, there's been a lot of discussion for a lot of years. Um, and, and the last thing I, I would say about the tools is that um, and we've talked about this today. Ankit brought it up on stage today. Just because it didn't work in 2008. Don't discard it. That's right. Because the the. Times have changed. The tools have changed. The circumstances are a little different. Leaders are are a little more flexible um, as as they work through some of these tough problems for the American citizenry. Uh, so I would just say be open minded and be willing to try something uh, again. Yeah, um, I want to go back just briefly as we start to wrap up. Perrin, um, we we're talking about the change management piece, and that jumped out at me most prominently. I think in the discussion around RPA where people really had to be careful about how they presented it to their teams because the immediate visceral reaction, no matter what people said was, oh, you're going to take my, you're going to eliminate my job. And that discussion became tremendously critical the way that you laid it out earlier in those kinds of discussions. No, there's plenty of work to do and we don't want you to do rote stuff that's boring that you'll hate. And that became the core of that conversation. So as the person who led that conversation at HHS <laughs> uh, and was the first to do it, I, I selected items in talking to my staff. Uh, what are we not doing that we should be doing? Mm -hmm. And so the, that's the way we demonstrated the value of RPA. And uh, we did it in security log reviews. We did it in... Uh, payroll updates. And again, HHS is a medium-sized agency with 87,000, 86,000, depends on who you ask, uh, employees. But um, those were workloads that people were like, wow, I'd really like to get that done. It's important. And then something was said today that I, I want to quote because uh, there's a young person from USDA, Tamika Hamlin, who was on a panel today. And, and she said something that I think everyone should take away. And that's listen better to serve better. And I really believe that that's the essence of this change management. So you're going you're gonna to hear things that you're not going to want to hear. But you need to hear them earlier rather than wait to the bitter end. Former HHS CIO Perrin Ashmore at ELC 2022. You can read more about change management in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Salesforce brings the public sector and customers together in the digital age. To access the new Veteran Mental Health and Resiliency Resources module, go to trailhead.salesforce.com. The Defense Department and the Commerce Department are delaying an agreement again that would codify data sharing between the two agencies. It's the latest example of challenges agencies face about data sharing. Mike Peckham is Managing Director for Advisory at KPMG. He's former Chief Financial Officer for the Program Support Center at HHS. At ELC 2022, I asked him if he thinks data sharing is getting better, getting worse, or staying the same among federal agencies. I think everybody's trying to get better at data sharing, but we do have some obstacles. And data sharing agreements are 
a pain, to put it simply. Um, you can agree to use a certain set of data for a certain period of time for a certain purpose. And once that agreement expires, you're done. You don't get to access that data unless you re-up, renew, do all those things. Um, in some cases, they don't even want to leave the resident data that you've been using. So you kind of have to bargain through that entire process. So you know I've been talking about AI a lot lately. Mm -hmm. um, when you start thinking about ethical AI and biases in AI, I stumbled across this whole thing of synthetic data. And synthetic data can be used, so uh, think about things like biometrics. Um, there's been a lot of talk about that, and there have been issues where ultimately um, the test population was predominantly of one persuasion, usually white men. So there have been problems around that, and I learned through a colleague at, at, uh, at KPMG that using synthetic data, you can tweak the algorithms for skin color, for eye color, for other things, and you can actually strengthen up the biases that are inherent because, let's face it, humans are the ones who create the algorithms, so there's going to be human you know, fingerprints on that every single time. Mm -hmm. But when I started diving into that, I had a light bulb that went off my head, and so I went back to Danielle and I said, hey, can synthetic data be used for data sharing? And the answer was, yes, it can. So one of the issues we've always looked at is PII, you know, and you don't ever want to be able to trace information back to an individual so that you violate their HIPAA, PII, whatever right that is. As long as you can't infer that information, we have a perfect opportunity to replicate information. Don't doesn't really matter where it resides, who's the owner of the information, but if you can start to mass produce synthetic data that is a replication of your real data and make that available for use across the board, imagine what that would do for data sharing. Mm -hmm. Imagine what you would be able to find in that data, especially if we allowed the private sector access to that. And I'm not saying they get free access, but they have access to it. They will look at that and, and see things in that information we've never, ever gleaned before. All right. Is there such a thing in the realm of synthetic data as being close enough to real data? Or or is something too synthetic that it's no longer reliable? What is there some kind of line of delineation or line of demarcation in the quality of the data? Well, I would say, you know, you don't want to do something where you're taking 20 percent of your data as real data and 80% of it is synthetic data. Mm -hmm. Okay. What I so and that's for, you know, the ethical AI, the biases and all that. But if you are simply taking the data that you have in a repository and you're replicating that for con consumption only mm -hmm. as synthetic data, then yes, that could be entirely 100% synthetic data. But you have to be able to map it, map it back to the trigger point that pushed the information from the resident system it was in to your synthet synthetic pool of data. Mm -hmm. And from that, I mean, it, it just, to me, it goes forever. The possibilities are endless. Um, I'll say, take CHIP, for example, so the Child Health Insurance Program. Um, coming from HHS, one of the things I used to always say was, is the idea behind CHIP simply to get a metric that says we have so many people in this particular area enrolled in CHIP? Well, I went back and I actually read the statute, and the intent, I believe, of the statute is not to just get them health insurance. That is. Let's get a child health insurance because right now they're getting sick, they're missing school, they're failing grades, things are going bad. Let's get them health insurance, let's get them back to school, get them into school consistently, and hopefully we will have more kids graduating on time because 
let's face it, you miss school, it's hard to keep up. Graduating on time, might you see the um, graduation rates go up? Might you see college applications grow up? Because the intent, I believe, of that one program is not to get health insurance at age five. It is to have a productive member of society at age 25. And there's no way to tell that right now because you have to map information across multiple different you know, government organizations. I'm talking about education, I'm talking about HUD, I'm talking about justice, I'm talking about health and human services. And right now we just don't have the power or the resources to do the data sharing agreements in order to get that type of information. Is that data sharing agreement problem that you talked about at the beginning of this conversation the major roadblock to the vision that you just laid out? So I think some would argue that, but in my opinion, yes, because I have tried so hard. You know, I, I um, did the Data Act implementation mm -hmm. at HHS, and the thing I found most interesting was folks would say, I will hand you information, I will pull information out of my system, but I am not giving you access to my, my system. Mm -hmm. So that tells me there's a trust issue. And you're not going, I don't think you're going to resolve those trust issues overnight. But if, I, if you're going to give me data and I say, okay, just take the PII, take all the HIPAA, just give me data. I don't want to know that it's Mike Peckham and he lives wherever he lives. I want to know this is what's going on with, with this independent, uh, individual A and here's how I can you know, tie that to information that is in these other databases or data sets. Mm -hmm. I want to pull back for a minute and focus on, think, I'm thinking about you as you're talking and making reference to your time at HHS. And I'm thinking about what do you see as the necessary evolution of the skill set of the person that comes after, not the specific person that's now at HHS, but what does, what does a data practitioner in the federal government look like skill set wise a couple of years from now that maybe isn't important to that person's skill set today or isn't as important? How does that job evolve over time? Not just the chief data officer, but all kinds of data practitioners. So I'm going to go a wonky way on this one. Awesome. When you talk about health, mm -hmm. I think that the dynamic, the paradigm is upside down. So when I go to a doctor and I move from Dr. A to Dr. B, and I'm, I'm going to age myself a little, you know, the paper files are there, and you will have to go to your doctor to get your information and pay your doctor for your information. Now, you're talking about how are the skills and how are the dynamics going to change. Well, to me, I think things are going to change from the perspective of everybody is now looking at this from the perspective of that's my data. I own that data. Mm. You guys are making a living off of me, off of the data that I own. I should have full access and rights to that data, and I should be able to share that data with whomever I want to. And so from that perspective, inherently people are going to become more in tune with data data analysis, what their data is, and how they are sharing their data. And I think that will really change the way that the entire, I will say, all industries industries look, because if I grew up in the military, my dad was in the Navy. Um, when we moved, our health records went with us. And so at this point in my life, you know, now that I'm 57 years old, I do not have a complete health history because my health record was lost that many times. Mm -hmm. Um, I went in to have surgery and I'm laying on the table and the doctor says, hmm, wish you had told me that you had an appendectomy. Now think about the idea or the concept where I own my data and I go to a doctor and I can just choose to give that doctor the data. Blockchain could be a way to do it. There, maybe there's something in the metaverse. I don't know. Somewhere in between, you know, you've got to figure out how that's going to work. But all that means is we're all going to become more digital as people. 
mm-hmm. in general. So the workforce is going to change, but the workforce to me is going to change based on what we're doing in our personal lives right now. We're going to start to see that coming into the office more and more and more. And we are seeing it already, but I, I think in five to 10 years, it's drastically going to change the way that people are looking at data, how they're using data, and ultimately how they're doing their jobs. So potentially, it seems to me the conflict among some of the ideas that you've put out there uh, today um, w- w- the problem that I see is if an agency, for example, continues to have the attitude that you described earlier, well, this is our data and we don't know who we want to share it with and we get to choose, should they be able to choose? Because there may be cases where they choose not to share something that they really should share for the common good. I would agree that I think that the individual should be in control of what data is shared and how it's shared. Mm-hmm. Now. I will also say that any time that you're going to uh, NIH for a clinical trial or you're you know, getting grant money, well, that information is information that's being paid for by the public. So there needs to be a clause or something in there that allows that data to be shared, period, end of story. Um, if, the, if the government is paying for it, the taxpayers are paying for it, the taxpayers have right to see it. We have to protect it. I'm never, ever going to say we don't. Mm-hmm. But now with synthetic data, um, if you give people you know, blockchains of their health records and they can you know, disclose their, their wallet to the doctor when they go in and they can turn it off. I don't like Dr. A and I'm going to go to Dr. B. Well, Dr. A will have all my information for the period of time that he was you know, providing services to me, but I can turn it off and that's it. He's mm-hmm. done. I would own my data. Nobody else would. Same thing. You go in for a clinical trial. This is just, you know, making it up right now, but mm-hmm. you go in for a clinical trial, you turn on your data and you say the entire time I'm, I'm doing this cl- clinical trial, you can have all the data, and I think that would be a, a, an agreement that you would have to do in order to get the service. Um, you could turn it off afterwards. It wouldn't be good. I, do, I wouldn't encourage that because you, longevity, like I was just talking about with Chip, you want to see what happens over time, especially when you're talking about health. But you have to give individuals the right to have access to their data. We are now becoming the product instead of the consumer. So let's look at it from that perspective. Former HHS Program Support Center CFO Mike Peckham at ELC 2022. You can read more about data sharing in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The number one CRM, Salesforce Customer 360 for Public Sector, is an integrated platform for public services. It features relationship management, case management, and lots more. You can learn more at salesforce.com government. The Department of Homeland Security's Science and Technology Directorate will take a three-step approach to bring new technology into the department and to market. Its new partnership guide lays out the journey for potential partners. Megan Mayle is Director of Industry Partnerships in the Office of Innovation and Collaboration at the Department of Homeland Security's Science and Technology Directorate. Megan, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. What did you want to put out there, and who are you communicating with with this partnership guide? Who do you want to consume it and use it? Welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, I think the partnership guide really is uh, broadly all potential external partners who have an interest in working with DHS on research and development. Um, Previously, we have put out an industry guide and we updated the wording this time around to really note that we work very broadly with private sector entities beyond what might be considered industry. In the very beginning of this guide, you're very explicit. This is a quote, we wanna grow our network of partners to develop Homeland Security solutions. What does a mature network of partners look like to you? Who all is involved with that and how are they involved with that, Megan? 
So in my mind, it's a very broad group. Uh, we really want it to be a diverse, inclusive group uh, who is interested and aware of DHS, S&T, and the funding opportunities and partnership uh, programs that we have. Um, we don't want you know, one size fits all for research and development. We want people who have never heard of us to take an interest. So it's small businesses, large businesses, academia, uh, national labs. It really is an open uh, group interested in uh, solving solutions, solving problems together. And and that's the end state here that that struck me as I went through this guide. And you're again explicit about the stages that you want to work through: engage, develop, deliver. The ultimate goal is to deliver capabilities. How do you go about assessing the capabilities that you want to deliver or want to focus on? Or or am I thinking about it the wrong way? Are you looking for your partners to say this is what we want? or this is a potential solution, does it fit into the mosaic that you're trying to build? So I think it could. we could approach it any number of ways, but primarily uh, S&T works with the DHS components to identify high priority gaps or, or needs. Uh, and we have those documented in the appendix of uh, the guide. Uh, but that's really a process that we go through internally to address the gaps by component customer and across components to really understand where our research dollars and, and focus should be. Uh, and then we put those out to our partners in industry and others to get their take on things. And some of our solicitations are very prescriptive and some are very open. It sort of depends on what we're looking for. How do you analyze, how do you take what you're looking for, analyze it and determine which of those approaches that you just described is the right one? Or is it just kind of a, we know it when we see it? I think it's a little a bit of both. I think it's an art, not a science all the time, uh, ironically. Uh, but I think, um, you know, we we want to, we do a lot of um, tech scouting internally. We do a lot of market research to understand where we're going to get the most interest when we put out a, a solicitation or a business opportunity. You talk about the partnership pathways here, the ways in which you engage with the organizations that you want to. And you talk about those organizations too. It's academia, it's industry, uh, there are international partnerships that you're looking for and so on. And we'll put a link to this guy at thedailyscooppodcast.com so folks can go through it. Um, and it strikes me that the describing the way that someone walks into this organization, walks into this journey, is probably as important. I, I know that I hear from industry all the time, especially companies that don't typically do business with the government, we're not sure where to start. Is that what you're getting at with this Pathways yeah. concept? Absolutely. Um, you know, DHS is overwhelming. I mean, it's it's huge. There's so many missions. There's so many components. There's so many, um, you know, just there's so many ways to work with us that it's overwhelming to figure out how to work with us. And so part of what we were trying to do with this guide is put it all in one place and break it down and make it easy, hopefully easy to digest and understand where someone fits in. When an industry partner or potential partner decides to to make this journey, what does that organization encounter? What's the kind of person in inside DHS that makes for a good industry liaison to be able to communicate with industry, especially people who haven't done business with the government in a way that they can understand, kind of tr translate uh, government speak to, to something that they might understand? 
Sure, and we do that in a number of different ways, depending on the type of solicitation uh, we're focused on or the type of group that we're looking at. Um, we do have an industry liaison, a group at uh, S&T, and it's not just a, an email address without a face behind it. We have a person, um, and it, that's a network of people across the department that work together to really help industry Communicate, you know, we we accept cold calls, cold emails. Tell us about your technology. We'll try to match you to the right program office. Um, so we would try to do the legwork. We could try to give them an idea for where they fit in. That uh, engage, develop, deliver uh, process. What's the infrastructure that you either had or had to build in order to be able to execute on that, Megan? So we sort of have that process built within the Office of Industry Partnerships. So the first piece, the engaged piece, is our uh, industry liaison is a big part of that. We do a lot of outreach. We do a lot of webinars right now, um, trying to just really promote S&T as an entity, making sure it's on people's radar. Our develop um, portion is really where our funding programs are, and these are Funding programs, funding opportunities that s and has that are not usually typical uh, FAR-based solicitations. So these are a little bit different in a lot in in the majority of cases. And then our develop deliver portion is our tech transfer and commercialization capabilities, which we run for the department in most cases. I note in the uh, develop portion that you referenced a moment ago, there are eight specifically um, instances that you call out in this guide. And you're right, there are a number of them that I see here. Some of them are geared at, at very narrow um, uh, parts of the landscape, academia in particular, for example, hacking for homeland security directed uh, exclusively at academia, it looks like from this chart. And, and then there are others like targeted broad agency announcements that sound to me like they're the more traditional type solicitation that are pretty much open to anybody. Um, how do you determine which ones go into which spots? Does it, is there something qualifying about each of those different things or how, what does that look like? So a lot of them, uh, those are all have various solicitations and programs built around them. And we've sort of built them focused on particular areas or, you know, types of industry. So Silicon Valley Innovation Program is an, an example of that. The department stood that up uh, to specifically focus on the startup community. And we run the uh, Small Business Innovation Research Program for the department, and that's obviously targeting U.S. small businesses. Um, so this was really just to provide a broad way for people to um, find out where they fit um, and know that there's multiple ways and it doesn't matter what type of uh, company you are, there's there's an opportunity for you. Um, on the delivery part, there are five different categories there. Intellectual property, general licensing, commercialization, accelerator program, uh, the cooperative research and development agreements, homeland security startup studio. I like the idea of a studio as a media person. Um, partnership intermediary agreements. Um, I guess it's the same question there. How do you determine which of those becomes the right way to deliver a particular technology that that has been developed? Sure. And, you know, across those programs, you know, the goal is to take technologies that have been funded by federal research and development dollars at DHS or other partner agencies and see them through to commercialization, get them out into the market. 
we certainly don't want to see things sitting on the shelf. Um, so, you know, the, the Homeland Security Startup Studio is a great example of that. We're, we're literally building teams of entrepreneurs around federally funded technologies and companies are growing out of the work that they're doing through that program. So it really is, uh, you know, just finding excited people who are interested in uh, you know, taking solutions and understanding the DHS market um, and seeing things move forward. Given that you said a few moments ago, Megan, that this is more art than science, is there, uh, are, are there common threads among the success stories that you've seen so far? Are there things that either the companies or that your office has done or some combination thereof that indicate this is probably going to work the way that we expect it to. This is going to deliver a capability that otherwise we wouldn't have gotten. I think you have to be thinking upfront about uh, the plan for go-to-market and commercialization. I think if you're just doing research around an interesting research question, um, you know that's great, and you may get it to a certain point. But it's very difficult to retrofit commercialization and you know a market approach three years into an R and D project. So I think most of the success that we've seen is when you're being forward thinking about that process up front. How will you look at this a year, two years, five years out, you and your colleagues, and determine this is working the way that we want it to? This is going the direction that we want it to. Is it just? delivery of capabilities, or are there other markers that you'll use to determine if you're on track? I think there's so many different potential markers. Uh, one that I'm very interested in that's a little bit harder to tell the story around is really seeing the relationship uh, of someone who hears about us at an event that we're at or reads the partnership guide and decides to respond to a solicitation. They competitively win an award and then, you know, they get a technology out into the market. So being able to tell that kind of life cycle approach and how we grew a, a relationship with a company, that's a really interesting story to me. It'll take some time, um, but certainly that's one that's not a traditional just um, here's a technology, here's, you know, the development, here's the, the um profits for a specific approach. And it sounds like the end state is not necessarily just that DHS gets the capability. It's that there's a new capability on the broader market available to private sector, available to other government organizations and so on. Am I hearing that correctly too? Absolutely. I mean, at ST, we definitely do work with our component partners to ensure that those end users are getting the capability that they need. But the Homeland Security market is is so broad and there's so much potential use there. I mean, we support all uh, first responders across the country, federal, state and local levels. So, I mean, that that's a huge market. And then, you know, we want to see how things can impact uh, on the commercial side. We want people thinking about dual use technologies as well. Megan, congratulations on this guide and thanks for coming on and just talk about it. I appreciate your time. Thank you. You can find a link to the partnership guide in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help me put the show together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast comes back tomorrow with an inside look at some of GSA's biggest contracting vehicles. Laura Stanton and Tiffany Hickson are here. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks very much for listening.